Welcome to That's What She Said About the Bible, a podcast by Wycliffe College. That's What She Said is a podcast devoted to telling the stories of historical women who taught others about the Bible from the pulpit and from the page. What did they write? What did they say? And why have we never heard of many of them? Join your hosts, Dr. Marion Taylor and Kira Molman, as they dig up the words of these forgotten women and explore their lives, their influences, and their relevance for today. For more information and episodes, visit our website at www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Today we're going to talk about Harriet Beecher Stowe, her childhood, her marriage, her life, and her writing. Harriet Beecher Stowe is someone who preached using her pen. Marion, could you tell us why of all the women we are talking about Harriet today? That's a great question. I found Harriet Beecher Stowe early on in my research on women interpreters of the Bible. And I was especially intrigued by her because of her family background, her father being a professor and uh, a minister, and then Harriet Beecher Stowe herself ended up marrying another professor. So she had feelers into the male academy world and the world of the church. And, but she also was a woman who was uh, very much influenced by her experiences of growing up as a motherless child and then living with her sister and in a girl's school and getting in touch with, with girls and their needs. And then being a mother of seven children. And so she was a woman who navigated two different worlds, the world of theology and the church and the world of women and the home and motherhood. And she blends those two together in a way that very few women do. She's born in 1811 and lives a fairly long life. It was a very rich and complicated life. So I thought she's a great woman to talk about because women today can look back on her life as I did and see her as an example of a woman who lived in a complicated world, had a complicated marriage, very difficult children with many sad parts of her life as a mother. And I thought, how did she manage and how did she cope and what was it really like? So I thought today we could get into her life and some of the details of her family life, her marriage and her writings, because I think she is inspiring to women today, even though it's a long time ago now. And Harriet also is the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So that's this is someone that people might know about but not know much about her life or her theology. That's right. Let's start with talking about her childhood. So her father was a theology professor. That's right. Lyman Beecher was a theology professor, pre congregationalist, and later Presbyterian minister. And when the time she was born... Uh, he was a professor at a seminary. And then her mother died when she was four? That's right. So she was what we would now call a motherless child. But her sister was Catherine, was 11 years older, I think. Um, 
either 11 or 11 years older. And she was older, she was old enough to become her mother. I guess that's what I would say. Her, her older sister, Catherine, became a mother figure in her life and was very influential in her life. So Catherine went on to be an educationist, become a teacher, and to found schools. And Catherine went to her sister's school and lived with her and became a teacher eventually. And it's in that school that a lot of things happened in terms of her engagement with women's issues at an early age. She was sensitive to how women thought, how girls thought, how, and, the, and their needs, and how to do pastoral care to these girls who lived away from home. So early, she would write pastoral letters to them. And I think this was uh, early on showed her that how she was doing pastoral care would be different than what her father would have done. And so going back to their actual childhood, there were a lot of children in the family, and the father was someone who used the time at the table, all meals, for teaching and training. And he wanted to train each of his children, girls and boys, how to do logical argument, argue philosophically and theologically and debate. So it's quite an interesting home to be brought up in, to think that you are trained to be a deep theological thinker who can argue questions about Calvinism, right, and eternal life. And she actually won, she wrote an essay on a deep theological topic when she was a child and won a prize. And I think, what child writes an essay like that? And I thought, a child raised by a professor who was training you to be a preacher. And in fact, all his sons became preachers and his daughters became preachers with the pen and theological educators. So it's a very unique family to be brought up in. How many siblings did she have? I think she had seven. Um, and then after her mother died, Lyman remarried and had four more children. So there are a lot of Beecher children, and a number of her brothers became very famous theologians. Henry Beecher was a very famous theologian who brought, who popularized the idea of evolution in, the, in America. But he was a very popular preacher. Can we talk a bit about um, after she moves with her dad, so now she's a bit older, and she befriends a woman named Eliza, who is actually married to the man that will become Harriet's husband. That's right. So when she moves, uh, when her father becomes president of Lane Seminary, she moved with him. I think she was in her 20s. She moved to Ohio at 21. And then she was already a good writer and joined a group uh, that was called the Semicolon Club, which I think is a fun <laughs> title for a reading and writing group. And Eliza became her best friend. Eliza died, and she married the widower Calvin. They already knew each other. They were good friends. And so she was from a theological family, with the father being a theologian, and then married a biblical scholar. And Calvin Stowe was one of the leading scholars in America, and he loved books, and he loved thinking, and he loved theology. And, um, and so they had, it's hard to describe the kind of marriage they had. 
it has very it's complicated and tumultuous and very yeah that's a very good word tumultuous marriage you and we know a lot about their marriage maybe too much of their marriage because their letters are published we're not going to get into all that they write about in their letters but they get into some very intimate details about their their relationship and uh Calvin was a, a, a man that had a bit of a temper, and he was impetuous. And at one point uh, later in their marriage, he accepted two jobs at the same time in different cities without consulting his wife. So that's the kind of thing that went on in their marriage, and it wasn't you know, always easy. And after that happened, she said that was the last decision he got to make. That's right. <laughs> So one of the issues she published on, and we can get into this in a few minutes, was, well, as she engaged in the stories of scripture, the issue of the role of women in marriage comes up. And so she's very intrigued by the, the verse in First Peter that talks about women should be submissive as Sarah was submissive to her Lord. And Lord is the name for husband in Hebrew. So as Sarah was submissive to Abram, so all women should be submissive. And that was cited in marriage ceremonies. Then when she wrote her book on women in, in sacred scripture, in sacred history, she read the stories of women in the Old Testament and thought, they're not submissive. And she at one point said, if Sarah is submissive, we all can be submissive. <laughs> Because Sarah bossed Abraham around. Just like told, she did with her husband. Just like she did to her husband. <laughs> so she, you know, she knew the Bible and knew those texts and knew the traditional expectations of women in their roles. And it wasn't an easy thing for her to do in that marriage. They really seem to also have helped each other. So he struggled with depression and struggled with procrastination, and she knew how to help him with those things. That's right. So at one point, uh, he wrote what was a very good book on the history of the Bible, and the publisher wanted the manuscript handed in, and Stowe wrote the publisher and said, you can't wait until he's finished the whole manuscript, or he never will, because I think he was a perfectionist. So when he was three quarters of the way through the book, she told them to tell him that the presses were rolling, that he better get it finished. And he did. And that's the only book he, well, he published a few articles, but that was the only serious book he ever finished. And it was because she pushed him to say, you have to do this and you have to do it now. So it's very interesting to see how she knew him so well and knew what he needed and was able to, to do that. But he knew her really well, too. That's right. And he had these high expectations of what she could pull off. That's right. So there's, in this one letter, um, he writes, You must, my dear, you must be a literary woman. Write yourself fully and always Harriet Beecher Stowe, Beecher being her maiden name, which is a name euphonious, flowing, and full of meaning, and take my word for it. Your husband will lift up his head in the gate, and your children, children will rise up and call you blessed. Yeah, that's a beautiful praise to his wife in a letter. And of course, what he's quoting is the end of Proverbs 31, which is a poem to 
an excellent woman, an excellent wife, a, a valiant woman, a, a virtuous woman. That word in Hebrew is translated different ways, but it's a woman, that woman is does everything. I mean, she gets up early in the morning, she makes clothes, she sells property, you know, she does everything. And it's a very interesting poem that highlights a woman. And people have all, always thought, even the rabbis thought, she does everything. What should a man do? <laughs> and they said, study Torah. <laughs> Your wife will do everything. Well, that's kind of what their marriage there, was. Yeah, she was a very busy woman. Um, and she criticized his life of, as a scholar often. And I think when you read some of her criticisms of him, uh, like you're spending too much time reading, um, I th think um, I think you have the exact quote. Yeah, Could you read do you want that? me to read that? Yes, please. If you studied Christ with half the energy that you have studied Luther, if you were drawn toward him and loved him as much as you loved your study and your books, then would he be formed in you, the hope of glory. But you fancy that you have other things to do. You must write courses of lectures. You must keep up with the current literature and read new German books. All these things you must do. And then if there is any time, any odds and ends of strength and mental capability left, why they are to be given occasionally to brushing up matters within and keeping a kind of a Christian character. Yes. So that sounds very foreign to a modern ear. And I think the way we can understand what she's doing is related to what we call the cult of domesticity. Can you define that yeah. for us? Uh, women in the 19th century had a high view of their role, and they were virtuous, submissive, but also spiritually leaders in the house. So they would call them the angel of the home, uh, the priest of the home. And so this is where Harriet Beecher Stowe is coming from here. She, it's her job to keep the family on, on track spiritually, including your husband. And so she's saying, Calvin, you're spending too much time with the books and not with God. And she's very forceful. And, but that's coming out of her sense of authority as the mother of the home, who's responsible for the spirituality of everyone in the home. So that was a view of women that uh, was very powerful philosophy and in some ways empowered women to think that they could write theology and interpret the Bible because, after all, they're the priest of the home. And so it's out of that sense of empowerment that she writes, I think, in part. And that was usual for the time. That, yeah. What was unusual, I think, is he also wanted her to come to his seminary or what, the, the seminary. That's right. Yes. When he became a professor in Andover, he had this vision that she should come to class and learn Greek. And he said, you should just learn enough so you can read the New Testament and you should come to my classes because it would stir things up at Andover Seminary where there weren't women in class. And he, And then he went on to say, you should do this so we can write together and we could write wonderful things together. Wow. They didn't. They didn't do that. She, she said no. And in part, that was due to the fact that there was still this lingering view, which we would, I mean, I find it very hard to believe they actually thought that. But medical doctors said, like, women's brains are smaller than men's. And if a woman studies too much, she will grow 
lean and lanky and become ugly. Oh, does she cite that as a reason that? Well, she that's doesn't one want of the go? reasons some of these women are thinking. Oh, I really, you know, women aren't made for this rigorous physically. Phys- yeah, uh, this high academic study. But I mean, everything else in her life suggests she was made to do all this. And as a writer. I mean, she was very rigorous in her discipline, and she produced uh, over 30 books and articles. So she she was no slouch. <laughs> and it seems like she wouldn't have had time to go to class with him because she was busy supporting their family that's often. Right. So he was an underpaid professor, and that's one of the reasons she wrote. So here she was. She had the, her first children born within the first year of their marriage were twin girls, and then Virtually every, every two years, she had more children, and they didn't have enough money. And so she wrote articles, and, um, and that helped her. I think it gave her a sense of, of vocation, but still they didn't have enough money. And it wasn't until she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was such a, a success, that they made a lot of money. It was published serially over 40 weeks and then published in uh, 1852. And in America, there were 300,000 copies sold in the first year. And in Britain, 1.5 million copies. And eventually it was translated, I think, into 70 languages. I mean- uh, Wow, 70? Yeah, 70 languages it's been translated into. So Uncle Tom's Cabin was, was a very controversial book, right? Because it talks about the evils of slavery, and it paints such a dark picture of what was a very evil situation. And the reason why she was able to enter into the, be be empathetic, I think, was she had lost her own, one of her own children, Charlie, at 18 months of cholera. So as a mother, she knew what it was like to lose a child. And then when she went to Kentucky and saw slaves being sold and children being ripped from the mother's arms, she knew what that mother was feeling. And so people who supported slavery had a view of Afro-Americans as uh, somewhat less than human and thought, they don't have feelings like this. And her book showed, of course they do, right? These are... You know, we're all made in God's image, and we all love our children, and to take a child away was just a terrible evil. So she was able to enter into the feelings of this, uh, of what slavery was, and what abuse was, and what loss is. And she put a human face on suffering, and that was a game changer. So what is now viewed to be an apocryphal saying is that uh, Lincoln said, oh, so uh, upon meeting Harry Beecher Stowe, he said, oh, so you're the little woman who caused the big big war, right? Because the Uncle Tom's Cabin had such an effect on the American public it that it, it said, like it, it convinced people that they should be abolitionist and fight against slavery. Yeah, and I think when you read it, it... It's crazy how she switches between telling you this story and in the next paragraph she's preaching 
quite obviously, she turns to the reader and says, how can you see this happen and not do something? And I think that it obviously did have an effect on the people that were reading it. And you also have talked about um, her father preached these kinds of sermons. So as a child, she was already introduced to anti-slavery rhetoric. Right. So when she was a young child, uh, there was a... Um a decision uh, when the state of Missouri became a state, uh, there was a big debate as to whether it should be a free state or a slave state. And her father, Lyman Beecher, began preaching very forcefully against slavery. So this is when she's nine years old. So it already had a real impact on her that this is a matter um, that you should think about. And But it wasn't till she was much older than when she saw face-to-face what was going on, that it became such an issue for her. And perhaps it was after her sense of loss also. And she didn't start writing until she was was 40, 40, even though she had the idea earlier. Yeah. And the actual plot for the book, she says, um, came to her during a sermon. Uh, She was listening to an an anti-slavery sermon, and she came home from church and got a piece of paper and wrote out the plot, and that was it. She wasn't expecting it to be as long as it is. It's two volumes, um, and but it just grew and grew. I think as her passion became bigger. So it's a book that has, well, it's not always appreciated in a modern sense, like people think. Um, and even her peers thought, oh, you know, what do you know about slavery? You've never been there. You're just making it up. So she wrote a sequel to the book that explained, that was really a database of where, what happened, where, where she's getting the information. And that was a very important book for her to write because it made her sensitive to the fact that even if you write a book, you can't control how someone reads it. So she became sensitive to the fact that different readers hear different things in texts. And I think that made her a much more sensitive reader of the Bible. And I think it made her more aware of the fact that she, as a woman, sometimes read the Bible differently than the men. So when she wrote later, uh, when she wrote a book, Woman in Sacred History, She writes, um, it's really a scripture biography book, and she starts off uh, with Sarah, not Eve, which is very interesting, because what she does in the book is trace through what she calls the sacred line, how God chose the family of Abraham and Sarah, and then how how it continues on with their children, but how... Um, how women have been part of this sacred line leading to Jesus. So it includes Old Testament and New Testament stories. And some of them are remarkable in their in the uniqueness of their reading of the text. And I love what she does with Miriam, the story of Miriam. The story of Miriam, of course, uh, Miriam is Moses' sister. And her story is in the beginning chapters of Exodus, where... Like many of the stories of the great leaders in the Old Testament, the stories are fronted by stories of women, right? 
that's that's a modern way of saying it, but there's the fronting of women in these stories. Women give birth to the women story. Women give birth to the story. That's right. And so in the Exodus story, you have the midwives who who protect the babies, and you've got the Egyptian princess, and you've got the sister Miriam and the mother, and you have five women, different cultures, different status, and they cooperate together to bring life. So it's a very, um, it's a very encouraging story about women cooperating to bring the to bring to save a a child from death and which then turns which, into salvation that's for right. a whole people that's right so it's a very exciting story but she focuses on Miriam and Miriam um, is an interesting character in the old testament because she's very important as Moses' sister and rescues him and negotiates his rescue with the with the princess, but then uh, then we don't hear so much about her. She f- shows up again at the crossing of the Red Sea, where you have the Song of Moses and Miriam dances, and she has a timbrel and she has music, and women follow her. It's a celebration of victory. And then she shows up again when Moses marries an Ethiopian woman, and she disapproves, and she and Aaron both speak uh, negatively about this. But she alone is punished, and she is struck with leprosy. And you think, I think most readers wonder, well, why was Miriam punished and not Aaron? Because they were both in this together. And she, Stowe comes up with a very interesting read. And she kind of rescues Miriam. She said, well, she's such, even from a child, she was such a leader. And then later on, she was a leader with a lot of passion, but she went too far. And then she says, uh, Aaron was a much more, I know, sensitive guy, right? (laughs) So God punished them according to what they could tolerate. So she said, Miriam messed up at that point and deserved what she got. The story continues, though, and um, Miriam dies, and we don't hear much more about her. And you wonder, what happened to Miriam? And so she fills in the blanks and says, and, and she asks questions. She says, why don't we have Miriam's writings? And so she's anticipating some some thoughts that many modern women have had, too. Where are the voices of the women in the Bible? We only have 113 named women, and we have hundreds and hundreds of men. Why is that? So she's asking some of these questions, and she uses her own experience as a mother and her and as a wife and her readings of Hebrew sources. She reads Josephus and other books to kind of make suggestive um, embellishments of the text, if you will, to fill in some of the blanks of the story, which she's a good story writer. So when you read her essay on Miriam, it's beautiful. And she preaches in, in that text. I think like some, some of her preaching is very effective and she speaks, boy, I, I think if she was in a pulpit, she would have been a very effective preacher. Like she really preaches the gospel to, pe- to women and men. I was so struck by some of the readings that we went through on these different biblical interpretations that she has and how beautifully she writes and um, persuasively as well, I think. 
She preached about what she called the redeeming power of women. She really thought women, I think, and this is related to the cult of domesticity, women had this power in the home, and they had authority in the home, and they could redeem. And that's why many of her characters are female, and she often shows them in roles that were not quite fully accepted in her culture. One of my favorite books of Harriet Beecher Stowe is called The Minister's Wooing, and it's a love story. And the heroine is Mary Scooter, and she she portrays her as a very young, devout Christian who is very godlike and filled with the Spirit. And she's, she... Um, she has the older person who falls in love with Mary is a Calvinist minister and a theologian. And there are lots of things that happen in this novel that are quite fun, that you see how she has women working at a table sewing, right? They're cutting material. And while they're cutting material, they are discussing the millennia. Should, should we go with premillennialism or postmillennialism? And right in the middle of this d discussion about when Jesus is going to come again, somebody's cutting the silk wrong, and they stop the discussion to cut the silk right. So you see this blending of women and spirituality all the time in her work. Another example of her discussion of theological issues in this minister's wooing book is the fact that one of the mothers has a son drowned at sea and he doesn't she doesn't know if what his spiritual state was at death so in the book there are two responses given to death and so you have the theologian coming and giving a theological lecture a discourse on heaven and hell and damnation if you're not saved and the mother wasn't sure she was a Christ, he was a Christian and so assumed he'd go to hell and he, the theologian is a Calvinist and talked about predestination and gave her this big lecture at the time of her deep suffering. And then on the other hand, there is an, she brings in the view of a black illiterate slave who has a very different response, one that says, look to Jesus. So you're a theologian, what, what do you think about that? <laughs> So my research is on uh, theology of death and theology of children. So this is, I should read this book. There are different categories of research on this. So there's a research that looks at what happens to unbaptized children or what happens to a child who dies. How do we locate them? Are they going to heaven or are they going to hell? Kind of the first response of this pastor and then we have um, theodicies trying to explain how can there be a good God in the face of death? How can there be a loving God when children die? And there is a third category of people just telling their story, giving an account of my son died and I this is what happened to me and this was who he was, and it's just a narrative. And in all of those stories, something that always strikes me is part of what they're doing is wrestling with God. 
but that God is close to them in that moment, close enough that they can wrestle with him. And I think that is the appropriate theological response because even if you are a Calvinist, part of that kind of theology is saying, we don't actually know. We don't know what happens. We have guesses, but how would you really know that kind of thing? So to say instead, what I think is the more profound Christian response, Christ is with you in this, whatever that means. Even if it feels like he is so far away, you're actually allowed to go running at him and beat your fists on his chest. Like that's part of what it means to be a Christian. That's very helpful. I think I think Stowe would like that a lot <laughs> because she... I mean, she suffered deeply, right? She suffered so much loss in her life. Throughout her life. Throughout her, her life. mother and then all these children and then her sister dies later too. So she, she has great loss and I think that in part helps her to be a wonderful novelist because she's able to enter into characters' lives and imagine their feelings, imagines their thoughts. And that's why when she retells the Bible stories, she enters into their world also. And she does it in a way that is so historically accurate because her husband's giving her all these texts on ancient Israel and Egypt. And so she's pretty accurate about what, what is known in her period about the ancient world. But then she adds the level of emotional sophistication. And, and often we don't get that in the Old Testament or new sometimes we we know what they say but how did they feel we don't know and it's it's interesting it's not so much um a negative kind of filling in the gaps as it is paying attention to what is in the text that's what i noticed in reading her work is she's really trying to pay attention to every single word that is there how does this help me understand the person of hagar or how does this one verb teach me what Mary is feeling in this moment, which is so sophisticated and ahead of her time that she's able to put all this stuff together historically and then also do the narrative emotional side of things. Right. So she does that with the Mary Martha story too, because she, well, lo people love them. Women love a Mary Martha story, but they're very troubled by it. You can imagine a 19th century woman who sees that her role or is taught that her role is in the private sphere. So then she should be the master of all the kitchen and, you know, doing, you should, you know, you don't need to know how to knit and embroider and, and do all these uh, things and set beautiful tables and, um, you know, be a master of all the culinary arts. So what happens in the Mary Martha story, though, is Jesus criticizes Martha for her busyness. And that's exactly what women are taught is their role. And so she wrestles with this, as a lot of people do. But she says, Martha is a spiritual woman, but she's a different type of character. So she kind of sees that the Mary and Martha are as different character types. And she said, the world is filled with different kind of people. And Jesus loves both the women, but they're very different. And Martha is so concerned, like, why is my sister not helping me in the kitchen? And Jesus says, 
you know, she's chosen the better part here. And that's a very interesting, um, you know, conclusion for Stowe and other women. So Stowe goes on about Mary being a more sensitive type, a more spiritual type, a woman who longs to know more about Jesus, and says Mary has had a, a deep experience of Jesus, learning from him, and is in a more settled place than her sister, and is not even thinking about the kitchen work. Not that she wouldn't help, but right now she's doing what she needs to do. So she really uses both those women, the sisters, as examples for all women to say, you need to get your spiritual life in order, but you also can do your work you know, in the home. So it, I, I like what she does with them. And I, I think she's not saying you have to be one or the other or both, but there is a time for both in our lives as women. And at one point, Stowe describes Mary as a priest. And of course, Anglican women couldn't, or they, you know, you weren't allowed to become a priest. But she said, like, she's more priestly than, uh, like, she's anointed with the spirit as a priest. And then she compares her priesting to that of many men who, upon whose heads have been laid many bishops' hands. And, and she said her priesting is more legitimate. So she had this edge, right? So even though she was in some ways conservative in her views of women's roles, she was always pushing. And she saw in the stories of the women in the Bible different things that gave her that edge. So Miriam, as a leader, gave her that edge. And she said, we can be like Miriam. We can be leaders. There's a verse, so the story of Miriam ends really not in the Torah, but in the book of Micah, where she is listed together with his, her brothers as leaders. So you have Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. That's such an intriguing triumvirate, right? They were um, a triad. So she uses that as evidence for the fact that Miriam is a leader and she often talks about the effect Miriam and her mother had on Moses. So she wonders, and she does more than wonder, but she said, she talks about the Old Testament laws that are very um, compassionate and humanitarian towards the outsider, women, uh, even dumb animals, she says. And she said, she supposes that's the influence of women and that's, again, the idea that women are influential on, their, on the people in their lives. And she suggests that Moses' empathy for the outcast and empathy for, you know, the widows, the orphans, the outsiders, that comes from teachings of his mother and sister, which is very interesting. So she kind of feminizes, you know, the... Well, she, she attributes some of the laws that are so sensitive to the feminine insights of women that shaped Moses' thinking. I never read that anywhere else, ever. And I thought, wow, this is different. She is, she is reading scripture differently as a woman. And that's what's so interesting about recovering those forgotten writings of women. They raise an interesting question about are women reading differently through the lens of their experiences? And the answer with Stowe is yes. 
So she blends that feminine reading with all the help she's getting from her husband. And in the evenings, they, the two of them sat around their, um, their stove, their pot-bellied stove, and he would give her insights. Like she talked, he read the drafts of her work and said, oh, you should look at this book. You should add this, right? So they, and she called him affectionately her rabbi. So that's another beautiful part of their relationship that was good is that they worked together as a team. It was a very effective team when they worked well. Right, whenever yeah. that actually Whenever happened. that happened, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you find in her work that as she's building in her theological knowledge through those types of conversations, her work is kind of becoming more nuanced and deep in her understanding? Oh, I think so. I think so. And, and people who have studied her as a literary figure, they've seen great development in her understanding of character. When I was reading her description of the women in the New Testament, she said, like, the stories are short, but she said the characterization of some of the female figures like Mary and Martha are better than the characters in Shakespeare. So she was a literary woman who knew how to read stories for stories' sake. So she was so sensitive to beginnings and endings and dialogue and emotion. She, she had real, she has a wonderful essay on this uh, Mary Martha stories. And um, she's a sophisticated reader. So she not only reads the literal sense, but also sees in texts some deeper significance. Um, do you want to read her idea of the deeper significance of these stories? So this this is from her reading of Hagar okay. with the story of um, Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. And after Hagar is kicked out of the family kind of dynamic, and Hagar is in the desert, and she is crying, and God comes to her and provides and she writes, this little story is so universally and beautifully significant of our everyday human experience that it has almost the force of an allegory. Who of us has not yielded to despairing grief while flowing by us were unnoticed sources of consolation? The angel did not create the spring in the desert. It was there all the while but Hagar was blinded by her tears. She was not seeking God, but he was seeking her. How often may we, all of us, in the upliftings and deliverances of our life, say as she did, have I here looked after him that seeth me? Yeah, that's very beautiful. So she sees often in the characters of scripture a type or lesson for today. And for her, it was an allegory there. And I think that's that story of Hagar in the desert was very meaningful to so many women. And when we were looking for stories on Hagar, we found like dozens of women write on Hagar. And I thought, Hagar is not a major figure here. Like, why do all these 19th century women know and love Hagar? And then we discovered that the way women and men learned the alphabet in the 19th century often was through a technique called the ABCdery. And for each letter of the alphabet, there was a Bible verse. And you get to the letter T, guess what the verse is? Thou, Lord, seest me, which is what 
Hagar said to God in the desert. So they all knew this story, and some of them would have the picture on the wall. Like, have you ever seen these eyes? A picture of an eye. Thou Lord sees me, <laughs> right? The eye looking at you. So they had this. They loved the story of Hagar because it reminded them that they were not alone. That God was with them. And so many women identified with Hagar that in their depths of despair, in their suffering, you know, in times of loss, abandonment, misunderstanding, God was there with them. And Harriet Beecher Stowe read it that way too. Like she said, Hagar's story is our story. And God met her in the desert, so God will meet us in the desert. It's a very beautiful reading. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said About the Bible, a podcast by Wycliffe College. For more information and episodes, visit our website at www.wycliffecollege.ca slash podcast.